Hello, this is Guardian Daily. I'm Matt Wells. It's Friday, February the 5th. This week, as the consensus on climate change comes under sustained attack, after more revelations from leaked emails, we ask, can trust in the science be restored? And how solid is the consensus on climate change? What hope is there for a future deal on emissions? And what can scientists and environmentalists learn from the affair? Joining me to answer these questions is the editor of The Guardian's environment website, James Randerson. Hello, James. Hello. Uh, The Guardian's environment correspondent, David Adam, is here too. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, And over in Washington, our US environment correspondent, Suzanne Goldenberg, joins us. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Now, uh, this week, The Guardian has revealed further details in a series of articles of the leaked emails from the University of East Anglia's Climatic Research Unit. We've seen how the head of that department, Phil Jones, became embroiled in, in a scheme apparently designed to obstruct freedom of information requests for data. We've also learned how individual rivalries came into play when selecting papers for scientific journals. And if that wasn't enough, the head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is fighting to keep his job after it emerged that mistaken results on the melting of Himalayan glaciers were published in an influential UN report. James, let's start with those emails. Um, Go back to the beginning for us. Why did the scientists at East Anglia go to such great lengths to try and prevent their emails, apparently? prevent their emails and data being released? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that comes out of these emails very, very strongly is the the sort of tribalism and this the sort of siege mentality that had developed because of the sustained attacks from the other side of the argument. There are a, a collection of blog sites that were uh, bombarding them with requests for information and requests for data, and under, under the new freedom of information laws, exactly. And um, you know, and this, these attacks were, I mean, particularly sort of ten years ago, were, were you know well funded. Some of them well funded by commercial interest, um, and so you know, on a human level, one can really understand the reaction of the scientists that they, you know, that they didn't want to give up their data to people who just wanted to pick holes in it. Um, you know, some of them for their sort of commercial paymasters who had a commercial interest. On top of that, there is a sort of philosophical element here about um, about openness in science. I mean, some uh, some people. I mean, really, the the, the sort of overriding uh, idea in science is that everything should be out there all your data should be checkable and reproducible and all that kind of thing but again on a kind of personal level the the, the scientists sometimes spent you know years putting together data sets that you know they had carefully put together and as far as they were concerned this was their data and they didn't want other people coming along and taking the credit for it there are a lot of wild claims that have flown around about these emails and what they show and all the rest of it. And, you know, this week we've probably published, we published more than sort of 12,000 words of fairly, you know, a major investigation that's taken um, the, the, the lead journalist, Fred Pierce, uh, a lot of time to put together. And I think what's remarkable about it is what they don't show. And that is that they don't show scientists trying to manipulate data, put data points in places that they shouldn't be to, to show something that the data doesn't show. They don't so, show the scientists deliberately trying to hide declines in temperature or anything like that. They show things that are much more subtle and nuanced. Uh, Bad behaviour, certainly, but not what a lot of people have said. The thing is, though, Suzanne, uh, these revelations, you know, however nuanced they are, um, they're they're lapped up, aren't they, by pressure groups in America who are determined to show that climate change is not a real problem? 
Absolutely. And let's uh, not forget that the, this does not take place in a political vacuum. You know, we've had this sort of collapse or near collapse, really, of the sort of global climate change talks at Copenhagen. The world leaders did emerge with a deal, uh, you know, brokered by some of the bigger emitters, but it's just a 12-paragraph agreement. So that's a pretty skimpy result. So what you have simultaneously is a real collapse of confidence both in the diplomatic process to try and end uh, global warming and uh, for some in the science. So those things uh, together are really are really having a, a knock-on effect, a much amplified effect. Mm. David, um, the, the person at the centre of all of this is the uh, the head of the department, Phil Jones. Who, I mean, who is he? Is he a, uh, what's his reputation? Is he a big figure in, in climate, climate science? He's a very high-profile figure. He's at, a very, he's at the centre of a very important part of the science, which is to gather the data from all around the world and to present that in a way that can be used by other scientists. So the East Anglia University are part of uh, one of a several, a handful of groups that produce, I suppose, usable data sources um, on, of, on temperature records that other scientists then will take along and interpret and work out. So he's an absolutely key part of the process. And as such, he became a very high-profile target, an important target for the people who, in some cases, wanted to prove that the, the science of climate change was nonsense. But in some cases, it wasn't that perverse. They just wanted access to the data. And when it was refused, it became a point of principle to them. Uh, and and in, I mean, in one of the emails that, that Phil Jones wrote, I mean, it, it, he refers to a, a trick he's using to, quote, hide the decline, unquote, uh, that's observable when looking at uh, tree ring data. Now, he says now the remarks have been taken out of context, but it's not, you know, it, uh, the, these emails show some, well, it's not good to use scientific data in, in, in that way, is it? I completely disagree with you. It, I mean, in that case, it was entirely correct to use it in that way. Um, and this is part of the problem. We have lots of commentators who don't understand what well, we're talking well, well, about. Well, I'm a I mean, lay no, person. I don't know. No yes, offence. No offence. But this is why yeah. it was so easy for people to take these and use them out of context and get the, the idea out there being repeated from time and time and time again. Yeah. And it's isolated and divorced from what it means. And if you do that in any field, you're going to run into trouble. Now, the the whole issue of peer review has uh, has come up uh, this week, James, uh, uh, hasn't it? And, and it was it was referred actually in the uh, in one of the emails that Phil Jones sent. He, he emailed the American scientist Michael Mann, um, uh, talking about keeping out inconvenient papers from an IPCC report. Quotes: Even when we have to redefine what the peer review literature is, um, is I mean the, the whole issue of peer peer review is con- is controversial, isn't it, James? Uh, to a certain extent, just to deal with that one specifically, I mean, it, it's significant because um, Jones was in a position of power in that he was one of the editors of the particular chapter of the IPCC report that we're talking about. But as a matter of fact, the papers that are referred to in that email um, did make it and are referenced in the IPCC. So whether, you know, whatever the intention was in that email, it wasn't carried out. And, um, uh, you know, Jones has since accepted that you know he wasn't speaking in the right way but, but, there, yeah, but, but the, the broader question yeah. of peer review uh i mean are there enough these... safeguards built into, into the system to stop personal biases which which seem to be I, at the root of all of this um, uh, coming into play i think what these emails have revealed is that is that science is a very human activity and um uh, scientists sometimes like to 
promote the idea that, that peer review is this sort of gold standard that um, that bolsters science and means you can you can definitely trust it and it's definitely right and that's what makes science so special and it, it, it is some kind of safeguard but it's you know anyone who works in science and I used to be a scientist knows that you know peer review is obviously contaminated by personal feelings and uh, and jealousies and professional rivalries and things like that because what happens is a, is a paper is sent out to people in the field often a field is very small and so everyone knows each other and everyone's vying and jockeying for position in 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 a field and so it's it, it is open because of the uh, anonymous nature of it for people's thinking well I don't really like that guy's lab or you know we're working on that or thing not so I'm going to in these cases so well yes this is the thing I mean, because it's now not anonymous and we can see... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, they they were not acting... You know, they they were collaborating amongst themselves sometimes in order to exclude papers, but... Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, um, have you ever have you ever had a, had a had a one of your papers rejected in the peer review? Process? I did have several papers rejected <laughs> when I <laughs> um, mainly probably because they weren't very good. I had plenty accepted as well. All right, <laughs> very good. Um, so, uh, Suzanne, the uh, I mean the problem here. Um, I mean it does seem it seems to, to to me that from what James and David are saying is that the the science isn't altered and, and there weren't deliberate attempts to falsify the data, but it's just a public relations disaster, isn't it? No, I think it's much bigger than that. I think, you know, I mean, the purpose of the IPCC report, the report prepared by the UN, is to give the best possible information to policymakers. So this is not divorced from making policy that will limit global warming. So you can't just say this is a debate about science for a number of reasons. One, you know, the uh, people who want action on climate change have said over and over that the science is real, the science is solid. So when cracks begin to appear in the science, that, that's very problematic. You know, when you're talking about making science-based decisions, you know, it then affects the whole issue of trust in the science. So you might say these are small issues, they don't affect the science, but they do very much affect perceptions and they affect trust. That has a knock-on effect in a, on an international diplomatic process that already you know, is basically shown that it's, you know, it's it, it hasn't functioned uh, very well. Um, it's still not clear how those negotiations will be carried forward. And here in the U.S., you know, it, it comes at a, a time when uh, people... Uh, are already sort of losing interest in the whole issue of climate change because in large measure of, you know, overriding concerns about the economy. So what you have now is lack, you know, when when people feel that they can't even be certain in the science of climate change when they're worried about their jobs, then the whole impetus to do something about climate change sort of drops. So action on climate change falls lower and lower down uh, the agenda. So in a very real sense, what this does is also make it far more difficult to get through action in the U.S. Congress to deal with global warming. Okay, uh, so it has a lot of different effects that go quite outside the scientific sphere. Well, you, you mentioned uh, trust in science, Suzanne, and we'll come back to that uh, shortly. But uh, you also mentioned the, uh, the international process, and this is one of the big strands to this story and the involvement of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change the IPCC. Now, this is the body uh, set up by the, by the UN to uh, monitor climate data, and it was forced to re- retract a claim that Himalayan glaciers could melt away by 2035. David Adam, you spoke to the uh, IPCC chief this week, didn't you? And he wasn't exactly in an apologetic mood. No, not at all. In fact, he said, um, 
I'm not going to apologise. That would be a populist thing to do. <laughs> I don't do many populist things. That's why I'm so unpopular. Yeah, um, no, this is uh, Regenda Pacheri. Yeah, it's Regenda Pacheri. I, I think just picking on one thing that, that Suzanne said, I think we do have to be careful. I mean, there are no cracks in the science. Yeah. In well, terms there are perceived cracks in the science. That's a very different thing, yeah. that there is a crisis in the, confidence. The perceptions are hugely important. They, of course they are, but I just think we should be careful in how we describe it. And I think there is a, there's a huge problem in people's trust in scientists. And I think that's very different. And how you restore that is very, very difficult for the scientists. Because I was at a briefing yesterday where they banged on and on about how solid the science was, the evidence base, the results, the empirical findings, the data, the observations. But they wouldn't engage at all with either the UEA uh, emails or whether Pachari should resign or not. Mm. Because they say the science is solid. We don't, that's all we're scientists. We care about the science. And, and, and so that's the problem. Now, moving on to Pachari... Uh, that's pretty much his line. His line is, look, there were 3,000 pages in this report. There was one paragraph that was wrong. Now, there are questions about whether he knew and how soon he acted, but they have acted. They have corrected it. The offending Glacier claim was not in the summary for policymakers, although it was used subsequently uh, for, for quite high-profile purposes. Um, I think it's a question of what we expect from our Scientists, these guys, and I'm, I'm going to defend them, but I, I accept there are flaws in the process and in their behaviour, as with all human beings. What I would say is that these guys do it entirely in their spare time. They don't get paid. They've done a phenomenal job of pulling pulling together all of the research, all of the reports. They've been under constant attack since the day they were formed. They were formed to give policymakers the evidence to take action. They were not formed to inform the public. Now, it could be, and this is what the guys were saying yesterday, that we got to the stage where the IPCC has run its course as it is, And it almost needs a separate report to hand to the public. Now, I'm not saying there's not a problem. It's a huge problem. There's a huge perception. Uh, sorry, there's a huge um, problem in perception and there's a crisis in confidence. But the science itself is as rock solid as it was a year ago. But, uh, 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 Suzanne, this is, this is the big problem here, isn't it? Uh, um, that some people would say that, that it's just not good enough for, for science, scientists to say, to stand on the mount and hand down the tablets of stone saying, you must, you must believe in this, the science is rock solid. Um, there is a PR issue. There is a, um, the, the, uh, the public have to be convinced. You can't just be, we can't just be told, can we, that the science is rock solid. We have to somehow trust that, uh, uh, that it is, and there's a feeling that we don't trust, particularly the IPCC at the moment. Right, and you know, Pachori's stance, for whatever reasons, and the stance of a lot of the scientists, you know, which might be, you know, justified in some cases, hasn't done enough, I think, to restore faith among the broad public. Now, you can say they're misguided, you can say the science remains rock solid, but it doesn't really matter when you're talking about trying to get public support for policies, at least uh, where I I sit in the US. Mm. Uh, James? I I don't feel like I have a solution here, but I do... um... I don't know. I think there's something about the, prop- the problem that, that deserves to be articulated, and that is that there's a tension between what the policymakers want from the IPCC and what scientists n- naturally able to deliver. You know, by its nature, science is made up of lots of awkward buggers who like. And I mean that in the most, you know, uh, in the nicest, in possible, the nicest way. possible way, <laughs> because you know, I kind of you know used to be one, and and I know the sort of mindset. Awkward buggers in the sense that they like to follow interesting ideas that are interesting to them and just keep 
keep on at them until they get the answer that that's out there and the thing is that you know they're, they're not very good at doing you know it's like herding cats you know consensus is not what scientists generally do they follow their own lines and and there's there is a sort of a contest of ideas that 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 comes about but that you know you're never going to get every single scientist in the world to agree and but what the policy makers want is they want they want it to be black and white they want it to be it's just like that or it's just like that now that's sort but, of but possible that's politics. politics is very black and white. well it, well it, that's what they want but the, so there's this tension now in bits of the science it's possible to say you know particularly in the kind of basic physics of, of climate change you know, this is definitely happening and it's definitely caused by humans. The difficult bit of the science is on the impacts, you know, how long will it take for the uh, Himalayan glaciers to make, how long uh, to melt, how long will it take for uh, the Greenland ice shelf to melt, how long, you know, how, how many how many hurricanes are we going to have next year? Those kind of questions are very, very difficult to answer. And so to try and force a consensus, to try and force easy answers out of the scientists, you're bound to have problems. And I think that's perhaps where some of the issues come from. I, I think there's just a slight misconception I, there. I, I think that, mm. that there is this belief that the IPCC is all about consensus. The IPCC report is riddled with inconsistencies and disagreements. It's the summary for policymakers that try and take that and distill it, and they reflect that uncertainty, but they do not discuss it. And when people talk about the science being settled, they don't mean that everything is agreed on every point and every scientist agrees with each other on everything. What they mean is that human emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are warming the earth and that is a problem and that is a problem that policymakers need to act upon mm. and that's it that that is the scientific consensus there's no scientific consensus on how hot how soon how dry how wet but we have a scientific consensus that we need to act take action we cannot carry on as we are well actually that isn't even the scientific consensus actually, the scientific consensus uh, is if we don't take action this is what we're going to get. It's up to politicians and the public whether we should or not. Suzanne? Well, yes, but campaigners like Al Gore and everybody else have used the science and tried to build a sort of unanimity in the science by, uh, by to, to try and build a political movement. So you have Al Gore routinely saying, you know, 95% of peer-reviewed literature says this. Now that, that that's a problem, is sort of harnessing the two together. It does become a political problem. And so I, th I think, you know, maybe the way out of this is to think of other ways to convince people to take action on climate change, because I think the, you know, the science or making the scientific argument hasn't swayed people enough in a political sense towards action. And I think what the policymakers are now doing uh, here and in other countries is showing, you know, economic gains to be made from taking action on climate change, that, the you know, embracing the new technology is uh, going to be economically profitable. So I think you see that argument in a, in a political sense coming forward more and more. And I think maybe if, if you want to actually uh, get at policies that will deal with global warming, that will have to be the way to go. What are, Suzanne, the prospects for action now? You mentioned the rather weak agreements uh, that were outlined at Copenhagen. Uh, is there any prospect of real progress being made on a legally binding global emissions deal this year? Is there any room for optimism at all on that? Well, apparently not. You know, we had a big piece in the in the Guardian earlier this week, uh, polling experts around the world, and, and no one uh, believes that we're on course for a legally binding agreement. 
Um, certainly not this year. In fact, it's still not even clear what the negotiating architecture is going to be, if it's going to uh, be a small group, big group, group of major emitters. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty at this moment. James, as we draw this to an end, um, how do you think, can, speaking as a scientist yourself, how can the public trust in, in the science of climate change be restored? I think um, scientists need to be open about their disagreements and I think they should be more open about I mean it, I, I know how difficult it must be but but when the other side are playing dirty tactics you've got to rise above that and uh, and walk the right line because you know otherwise you'll be judged in the way that they are being judged okay uh, thanks very much to uh, the panel, to uh, James Radisson, who you heard there, Suzanne Goldenberg in Washington, and to uh, David Adam uh, here in the pod. Uh, before we go, in a, a podcast that's uh, about full disclosure and openness, we should uh, correct an error in uh, yesterday's Guardian Daily. Uh, our item on the Forbes list of internet stars inexplicably used the list for, from 2007. Uh, for the, for the up-to-date up version, go to uh, Forbes.com. Uh, that's all for this week. Guardian Daily is back on Monday. Monday. I'm Matt Wells. The producer is Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.